Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. This week we're peering into the future with the linguist Christina Dalcher, who imagines a world where women are restricted to just 100 words a day in her action-packed debut novel, Vox. But first, we'll hear from the best-selling novelist Matt Haig, author of How to Stop Time and The Humans, who took a turn into non-fiction in 2015 with a patchwork account of the depression he suffered in his 20s, Reasons to Stay Alive. Now he's released a follow-up of sorts, Notes on a Nervous Planet, which examines the particular challenges of living in the modern world. When he came to the studio, he started by explaining why he decided to write about the unhealthy nature of 21st century existence. Well, I'd already written a book about mental health called Reasons to Stay Alive, which was my very sort of autobiographical and personal experience of having a breakdown and... um, I was kind of willing to leave it there. I, I, I was writing children's books. I wrote a novel for adults about a 439-year-old man. I was, I was escaping into sort of fantasy again, and, and I, didn't, I certainly didn't want to write Reasons to Stay Alive 2. And um, what I started to feel a little bit frustrated about, or something that was a bit incomplete about what I hadn't really talked about in Reasons to Stay Alive, was the idea of mental health not as some sort of random brain lottery um, where you're this sort of passive victim of, but um, as a cultural thing, as a social thing. An environmental thing. An environmental thing, you know, because one of my big things, and it's something I've mentioned in both books, is that mental health and physical health, it will be very helpful when we get to the holistic stage and it's just health, because I don't really know what mental health is is as an aside to physical health because even if you just think of mental health as your brain your brain is a physical piece of matter your thought processes at at the micro level are physical uh, in the true sense of the word so I don't think the divide is very helpful and I think it's also one of the reasons why we have so much stigma around mental health how we have less funding for mental health so all of that so I thought it'd be good to write a book about the context of mental illness and the context of mental health because this isn't a book unlike reasons to stay alive which was very much aimed at my 24 year old self standing on the edge of a cliff this book isn't necessary for someone experiencing depression or anxiety it's mental health as opposed to mental illness and that's quite a distinct thing and it's to look basically at mental health the way we look at our physical health for instance we will we will have no um, qualms about talking about our physical health 
um, culturally in the sense of knowing that fast food is bad for you, passive smoking, um, sedentary lifestyle, whatever it may be. We haven't yet done the same in the same kind of way, to the same kind of level with mental health. So, so when you look around you, what, for the environment, for our mental health, what do you see in the 21st century? Well, I, I see, and, and what I've felt and experienced and researched, is we've just overloaded with stuff in a way that we, we haven't been before. We've got a glut of everything, whether it's an overload of where we get our news from, how we experience our news, whether it's the drip feed of news. You know, if you're just on, on news itself, um, if you go back to the 1970s, you Basically, most people have their news twice a day, 1980s, twice a day. You had your morning print newspaper, and then maybe you'd catch up with the 6 o'clock news where it was nicely packaged. It wouldn't be in real time. It was a kind of tame version. And, um, you know, in those days, social change could happen without that. You know, people still got rid of Nixon without having to have the constant stream of Twitter like we do now. Um, whether it's TV, whether it's Netflix, we're, we're surrounded by choice. And um, obviously choice is essentially a good thing and we all want choices. But I think there comes a point with anything where there's a tipping point in which it can actually be paralyzing and i feel like we're definitely visibly seeing that in the political world um you know the center's not held and and the whole idea of truth famously which has been well documented anywhere everywhere else is up for question but it's also affecting our psychological um selves as well i was interested where you mentioned that one of the triggers for mental illness is often change just a a rate of change yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most people would accept that in an individual's life, and certainly in my experience of mental illness, um, it's often behind it, a, a, a trigger or a cause for it, could be a profound change in your life. Um, it doesn't even have to be a negative change. Obviously, if someone you're close to dies, that, that, that will lead to grief and possibly depression and things like that. But even getting a promotion, winning the lottery, having the baby you've always wished for. You know, it can be a thing that from, looks from the outside like a good thing. And like consciously you know it's a good thing, yet that change is unsettling and that unsettles you to the point you get ill. And I think it's interesting because most people would agree we're in a period of profound change. Um, people would disagree strongly about whether most of the change going on, technological and political, is good or bad. But no one, I don't think, could deny that we're in a massive period of change. So what happens collectively, now we're in this very connected age in one sense, in the technological, literal sense, what happens when collectively we go through change? I mean, is it possible for societies to have a breakdown? Is it possible for societies to experience a disorder in that sense? I was also struck by something you say about social media, which you say it's kind of the perfect medium for this thing called mirroring, the psychological phenomenon whereby you you share an emotion even if your points of view are very opposed. Yeah, and it's a a common thing with all primates. There's all kinds of... um, biologists and um, animal behaviorists who, who've looked at monkeys and it's the same thing and, and human beings are very much fit into this too that our emotions mirror each other so we like well, if i'm on twitter arguing with a, a a person whose flag is an avatar and they're based in texas and we're having a, a deeply political argument and we feel like we're the opposite of each other we may politically be the opposite of each other but that anger and that tightness in our chest we feel towards each other is the same so 
Although we famously feel like we're in this divided age, I think there's a sort of psychological similarity in the anxieties we're feeling, in the anger we're feeling, in the frustration we're feeling, whether we're left, right, middle, whatever. You know, we're seeing all the political difference, but we're not seeing the sort of collective psychological effect. So one of the things you argue is that we should step away a little bit from social media. And so how's that going for you? I mean, how many (laughs) tweets this morning? How many this week? Um... I think there's only two tweets this morning. I been... counted three. Oh, three. <laughs> yeah, one of them actually was sent uh, yesterday. And for some reason, it appeared today. I don't know why. It was just a temperature. But no, listen, it, it, I'm really, this is my weakness. This is my weak area. I'm, I really don't practice what I preach with social media. I am getting better. There are things I don't do that I used to do. I still tweet a lot, and I, I think I think particularly at the moment because I've got notes on a nervous planet about to arrive, so I'm sort of in that rabbit hole. Um, but I, I'm really bad at it, and actually the impetus to write the book was to understand myself a little bit more, to understand if this could be comparable to an addiction, to understand if it is a health issue, our sort of obsession with social media. So I'm definitely not the sort of self-help author who is speaking from the high ground at all i'm speaking and hopefully it's clear in the book i'm speaking definitely from within it you say that we should rebel against marketing that we're being sold unhappiness because unhappiness is where the money is 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 the problem capitalism i think partly the problem is um capitalism and consumerism i mean it's certainly this particular phase of hyper consumerism we're in at the moment if we were totally satisfied with the way we looked and our wardrobes and um our status in life and our income and everything else, well, that wouldn't be good for the economy, would it? I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, for, to get people to want things, you've got to tr- try and make people feel like they lack things. There's a acronym um, that is uh, beloved by marketing professionals called FUD, FUD, Fear, Uncertainty and Doubt, which is something they try and instill in people, in consumers, in supermarkets, um, through their brand messaging to actually make people feel anxious about something they haven't got and then they can therefore sell the solution. So a famous example would be an anti-aging cream where they'll be, be saying we're selling a solution, but to sell a solution that within that, they're highlighting that there is a problem. Maybe if all that, the multi-billion dollars that were spent on the message of anti-aging miracle creams if that was spent just in being totally happy with how you are at the moment and you don't need any creams at all maybe our psychologies would be collectively slightly improved about our looks but obviously there'd be no money in that there'd just be happiness in that and that that doesn't drive the economy forward i'm sure you're alive to the irony of trying to fix capitalism by trying to sell a book (laughs) yes absolutely and um I'm certainly aware that I'm right deep in the sort of middle of a sort of marketing um, thing here. But I question it with myself as well, because I'm sort of addicted to writing books and I'm addicted to the feeling of having a book come out. And even though I would never not want to be a writer and certainly not want to be a published writer, I think it's not particularly great for your mental health having having a book being published i mean it's certainly nothing that you could get sympathy for you know, no no one's going to say oh poor you you've got your new book coming out that must be dreadful for you no one's going to say that but it makes you very wrapped up in yourself because it's you're a matter of exposure as well it's isn't it? exposure and so you're having to be that annoying self-promoting person and 
even just writing a book, you, you're heading into yourself. And then, you, then it, during the promotional stage, you're talking about yourself for a month. And none of that's healthy. I mean, health is sort of thinking about other people, caring for other people. I mean, I like to think the best version of myself when I'm writing these books, I am trying to sort of be useful, you know, and provide something useful. And, and in some ways, it feels nicer sometimes than writing a novel where, where I'm just sort of escaping and dodging. It feels nice to do something useful, almost like it's got a real job. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a quite sort of self-indulgent thing and not a, not a very healthy thing. So I have to play the marketing game. And I'm, I, I'm definitely not saying in the book, I'm not being prescriptive that people have to come off social media or they have to do this or they have to stop buying anti-aging cream. I'm just aiming for sort of awareness because I don't think we're at the stage of awareness yet where we're actually questioning why we're feeling what we're feeling. So as well as moving away maybe from social media and not buying so much anti-aging cream, as well as writing useful books and useful books only, what else can we do? Well, part of that awareness, I think, is, is being aware of how unnatural our lives have become. You know, our definition of progress is so much tied to technological progress and and we forget that we're essentially our neolithic selves we kind of know we're essentially cave people in the modern world but we don't really understand that and I think this isn't a new thing by the way you know it's very easy for people to say oh yes you're getting a bit older now so you're moaning about all the millennials on Instagram and Snapchat it's really not I mean like and in the book I reference Samuel Pepys with his latest pocket watch um, where he was compulsively checking checking it all checking the, time. the time it didn't even have a minute hand this pocket watch <laughs> it was a pretty rubbish bit of tech uh, you know, he had to wait another 10 years before you could actually get a minute hand and it was be vaguely accurate. But yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't deal with it. So he ended up getting rid of his pocket watch. And then, you know, centuries later, you have Thomas Edison, who, who famously invented the light bulb, obviously, or, or patented the first light bulb. And he brought with him not just his invention, but this whole idea that sleep was this luxury, you know. And, and, and since then, whether it's Donald Trump, Margaret Thatcher, whoever it is, showing off about how little sleep they get. And that's tied with being a sort of successful business person or a successful worker. And it kind of goes back to Edison, who, who, who believed that workers essentially with artificial light could go through the night. And it certainly did start to affect our natural rhythms. Because if you had, you know, gaslighting and um, candlelight, you were sort of in tune with night and day a bit more. And now we're in this sort of artificial world. I mean, on the subject of sleep, the head of Netflix, whose name's temporarily uh, is Reed Hastings, I think, he, he outwardly said at a conference, Netflix's main competitor isn't another TV company. It's not another streaming service. Netflix's main competitor is sleep. That's where they can increase the margins. So they're trying to keep us up all night. So it's just being aware of this stuff. The book, like, like Reasons to Stay Alive, it's full of lists. Lists of things you should do less of on the internet or places where you've had panic attacks or things that are faster than they used to be. What's the appeal of the list as a kind of rhetorical device? Well, or- originally I was doing them in Reasons to Stay Alive um, because I was trying to write a book that when I was 24 years old, standing on a literal cliff edge wanting to end my life and in the middle of panic disorder, anxiety, depression, a book that could have reached me. And and the thing is, in that state of mind, I couldn't have sat down and read some sort of dense academic book on depression. I wanted a way to sort of puncture through that sort of state of mind. And I think actually, creatively, one of the great things about our 
internet age is it, it is it does encourage you to sort of adapt your style and play about with new forms and new things so i love seeing white space on a page i love seeing lists and short chapters and short sentences and i and i know lots of people for quite good reasons can be quite snobby about that stuff but i actually think you can say the same thing but do it in a different format in a different way and that, that's quite an interesting writerly challenge uh, yeah I, I love a list i feel like that it just sort of pierces it's got that through. punch it's got that punch absolutely uh, it's been what it's three years is it since reasons to well, how, how have you found uh, your experience of uh, of talking about your depression um initially i found it very hard i wanted to run away from it which is why after reasons to stay alive i wrote a, a children's book about father christmas and uh, <laughs> yeah no and, and fantasy novels and stuff i kind of wanted to go in the opposite direction so following a book about depression with an origin story for father christmas was you know it was as far away from it as i could get because the opposite not, direction <laughs> yeah exactly not so much for the writing of it but the fact that i've ended up having to do sort of 50 sort of literary events talking about it and i was i was i I had a kind of imposter syndrome, I suppose, because I wasn't a doctor or a Samaritan and suddenly I was being talked about as mental health ambassador or, you know, a spokesperson for mental health, which sounds very sort of dry and official. And I didn't really know how to deal with that. So, for instance, when the paperback of Reasons to Stay Alive came out, um, it was doing really well. It was number one and I was getting lots of emails from people and um, it should have been great. Everyone was thinking I was having a great time. And I was in the middle of one of the most intense bouts of anxiety I'd had since my breakdown, I was in a month of just sort of walking around in circles, not knowing what to do, uh, lying on my sofa, thinking I was having a heart attack, hardly able to leave the house. And I was thinking, I was feeling like such a fraud because I'd written this book. People were apparently saying it was helping them. I was thinking, why can't it help me? You know, uh, I, I felt like it's sort of hypocrite. And I, it took a long time to process that, to realise, well, I'm not writing this from the sort of mountaintop of saying I've got all the answers or anything. I think what people liked about that book or connected with that book was the fact that you know I was just being honest about an experience and I may not be better in the complete sense but I'm better in the comparative sense from where I was I'm not suicidal anymore a healthy thing for me has to give up on the idea of 100% health because none of us go around thinking oh I'm 100% physical physically healthy but we sort of do that with mental health we sort of feel like oh we're all or nothing and one of the things when I first became ill, one of the things that was so crippling for me was thinking, well, I'm not fully sane anymore, so I must be sort of completely mad. And then visions of sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or whatever came into my mind, and I was imagining straight jackets and electric shock treatments and every sort of nightmare cliched image of um, mental illness. So I just want to sort of break that stigma, really. Uh, you say that your science fiction novel, The Humans, was really about the alienation of depression, and you've got Tom Hazard in in How to Stop Time is depressed for basically four centuries. What's it like writing about the same sort of subject in fiction or in non-fiction? What's the experience like for you? Well, it, it, it's kind of freeing doing it in fiction. I certainly wouldn't have written Reasons to Stay Alive if it wasn't for The Humans. The Humans was... On one level, the most fantastical thing I'd written, but on the other, the most autobiographical. I think writing about it in fiction... I mean, fiction is, on one se- in one sense, an obvious literal sense, an escape from truth. But my incentive, and a lot of writers' incentive, I think, for writing fiction is you, 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 can, you can be more truthful, you can be more emotionally truthful, and you can, you can explore things. And, and actually, for me, the further it is removed from reality... So with How to Stop Time, you've got a, a, a person who, who's living for 439 years. And that, for me, was a perfect way to explore 
uh, the sense of time stretching and dragging claustrophobically um, with depression was to, to not just say, oh, it's a, it's a depressed man who feels like a year lasts forever, to actually literally turn it into someone who is 439 years old. So I find fiction a great tool for um, exploring real stuff. Uh, sometimes, with reasons to stay alive, I felt like the need to cross over into non-fiction because I was thinking, if you're literally helping someone in that sort of suicidal situation, I could do it in fiction. I was asked or encouraged to do it in fiction, but I thought, no, it's gonna, they're going to want to know that this person writing this book has been there. But I, I think, you know, using both together, I suppose in the newest one, in notes, I do a bit of both. I mean, I interview a turtle, which... <laughs> Spoiler, I didn't actually <laughs> I didn't actually do that. I didn't sit down in a little booth and um interview a two hundred year old turtle. Yeah, but you say that um that there's ways in which writing a book that even the process of kind of being on your own time, being with yourself for that long is slightly difficult, maybe a little bit unhealthy. Do you find it's yeah. different writing fiction to non fiction in the in those terms? Um yeah. I mean Non-fiction, to be honest, I find easier, probably because I know the story. And, um, you know, they're shorter and faster. I mean, How to Stop Time, I found a really hard write. It, it was very hard, probably because it was... For once, I was doing proper writing, you know, which you had to research in uh, historical periods. It was like doing 12 little historical novels in one. And, and that was quite intense, and it wasn't particularly pleasurable. Everyone thinks the most painful thing I'd have written would be A Reason to Stay Alive, but actually that was just so such a cathartic, therapeutic letting go. Because the thing is with depression, it's never a case of going back there. Anyone who's had any intense or traumatic experience in their life, it's always on one level there. So writing it down might be putting it in front of other people's faces, but it's always been in your mind. So it was more like a, a letting go or at least an owning of the experience, which I find quite therapeutic. And what's next? Are you going to return to the same sort of subject again? Uh, I don't have any other um, mental health books in my mind I do think three is a nice number so if I do at some future point um, have another um, mental health related book I, I would write it but at, at the moment I'm working on a children's book which again having just written a mental health book I'm escaping into a world of a, a girl who's got telepathic powers and she can hear the voices of animals and that will be called Evie and the Animals and that'll be out next year hopefully but um, yeah that's just pure escapism. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Hello, it's Ian's sample from The Guardian's Science Weekly podcast. And Jordan Erica Weber from Chips With Everything. This week, we've teamed up to take a look at biomimicry. Life on Earth has been evolving for billions of years and it's come up with some pretty smart inventions. And since the dawn of humankind, we have been copying them, or trying to. So why is it so hard to mimic the living world? I beat out photosynthesis. 
And the reason I say we beat it out is because we did it 10 times better than natural photosynthesis. And should we be plagiarizing nature? So the military is particularly interested in learning from nature to help them solve solutions, including better nuclear warheads and so on, which I'm guessing the organism that inspired those would not be, <laughs> would not approve of that technology. Join us for a special mashup of Science Weekly and Chips with Everything. Just search for either podcast in your app or head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcast. You're listening to The Guardian Books Podcast. How would you make yourself heard if there was only so much you could say? In 2007, a study conducted at the University of Arizona found that, on average, men and women in the US speak about 16,000 words a day. In her fast-paced debut novel, Vox, the linguist Christina Dalcher describes a near-future America where women are compelled to wear a silver counter on their wrist say more than 100 words in any given day, and they receive a powerful electric shock which gets steadily stronger as they carry on talking. That's 100 words right now, just in this short trail. When she came to the studio to talk to Sean Kane, she started by reading a scene from the novel where Jean discovers her daughter is talking in her sleep. The first time she screams, I think I'm dreaming. Patrick snores beside me. He's always been the one to sleep heavily, and his schedule for the past month has run him into the ground. So snore, snore, snore. My sympathy has already expired. Let them work 12-hour days to pick up the inevitable slack that cancelling almost half of the workforce brought about. Let them bury themselves in paperwork and administrative nonsense, and then limp home only to sleep like the dead and get up and do it all over again. What did they expect? It isn't Patrick's fault. I know this in my heart and in my mind. With four kids, we need the income his job brings in. She screams again. Not a wordless scream, but a blood-curdling waterfall of words. Mommy, don't let it get me, don't let it get me, don't let it get me, don't let it get me. I'm out of the bed in a tumble of sheets and quilts, nightdress tangled around my legs. My shin slams into the hard corner of the bedside table, a bullseye on my bone. This one will bleed, leave a scar. But I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about the scar alone if I don't make it to Sonia's room in time to quiet her. The words continue pouring out, flying through the hall toward me like poisoned darts from a million hostile blowpipes. Each one stings. Each one pierces my once tough skin with the precision of a surgeon's scalpel driving directly to my gut. How many words has she said? Fifty? Sixty? More? More. Oh, God. I was coming into your book maybe expecting something different and then very quickly realised that this is really a a thriller at its heart. I I think it is. I think it is. There's a... Thrillers are what I like to read, mm. actually, when I'm not reading horror. So horror is what I, what I really like to read. <laughs> Thrillers are a close second. And I guess there's a sense in which I wanted to write something that was really, I don't want to say accessible, because that seems, I don't know, that seems kind of uh, 
derogatory in some ways, but I wanted to write something just just a normal book, the mm. kind of thing that you'd pick up at an airport shop that people would would pick up and read and start reading and say, "Oh yeah, I get this. I don't have to spend, you know, an hour per chapter sort of dissecting it and wondering what this was really about." Mm. I wanted it to be a fast read and an enjoyable read, even though I suppose there are parts of it that aren't very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a fine balance, and we, we might, we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, maybe could you um, start sort of telling us a bit with how you came up with the idea of focusing on the power of the voice, um, and particularly this this sort of device, this um, punishment that's inflicted on women throughout the book. Why you settled on a hundred words as your sort of uh, parameter? So, believe it or not, Vox was born of a seven hundred word story, a piece of flash fiction I wrote for a doomsday-themed contest. And so at its inception, this story didn't really have any of the Vox plot in it. It was Instead, I imagined a world in which our linguistic capabilities, our linguistic faculty was removed from us. I imagined a world where every man, woman, child, every human being everywhere succumbed to Wernicke's aphasia, this type of aphasia that leaves us very fluent, but but our speech is actually sort of meaningless. So it's, it's when people basically conjure up the wrong words for absolutely for situations. So what I was imagining was a complete breakdown of any kind of communication as we know it, and it was a really nice and sort of frightening doomsday scenario because I think since our humanity is so closely tied to the fact that we have language, the fact that we're the only species in the animal kingdom to have language, the degradation of our linguistic abilities would be the end of us, right? I mean, we'd just become another animal. So that was quite frightening, and I wanted to continue playing around with this, but I wanted to take it further. So I imagined all right, let's see, who can I have as a character? I could have a neurolinguist. Maybe she's curing aphasia, but in order to make it darkly ironic, I created a world where she was and other women and female children were not able to speak. So there's some irony there because she's spent, this character, Jean McClellan, Dr. Jean McClellan, this neurolinguist who's the main the character in Vox, she spent her entire life effectively trying to give people's voices back to them. And she hasn't bothered to use her own. Mm. So what happens? She ends up losing her very own voice, and her daughter does too. Now, as for 100 words, as opposed to zero, well, I suppose some of that is just, I don't want to say an accident, but if we think about it, I could have set the counters at zero. Mm. But that wouldn't have been quite as dramatic, I don't think. Yeah. You know, there's something awful, awful and terrifying about the idea of wearing this wristband that pulses every time you say a word, that shows you the number of words you've spoken. You're looking 40, I've got 60 more words. In the evening, 95, I've got five more words. Mm. Something very ominous, very chilling about that. Mm. I liked... um a lot of the things that you, the details that you included to flesh out the word, the world, and there was part of that was, I mean, sign language is uh, banned 
in this in this sort of society because it is another way of getting around this verbal communication um, amongst the women. So women can't use refer to sign language, but they can do small gestures like just holding up their their wrist and showing their counter to someone that's talking to them to show them. Well, I've only got fifteen words left, and right. I'm probably not going to use it right. for this for this interaction. Right. So this is an interesting topic that you've just brought up. This idea that sign language is not okay, but holding up your wrist to show your counter to someone is okay. Let's think about this for a minute. One of those is language. The other one is communication. Different things. We all communicate. All of us communicate. Dogs communicate. They don't have language, right? So sign language, whether it's British Sign Language, American Sign Language, Italian Sign Language, Nicaraguan Sign Language, these are natural languages. These are languages. They are structured. They're rich. They've got grammars. They've got phonologies. They are every bit as much a language as any spoken languages. Holding up a wrist or pointing at someone, those kinds of gestures, they're not very rich in their structure. Uh, Lots of other species can do similar things. So again, what the the control in Vox is not really about controlling communication. It's specifically specifically controlling what makes us human, mm-hmm. specifically controlling our language. And I think that's quite scary because when you take away our linguistic faculty, you're effectively taking away our humanity. It's sort of inevitable with with books um, at the moment, but it is interesting. I think with it being out for about thirty years and now being on the telly, um, that so many feminist novels are being compared to *The Handmaid's Tale* by Margaret Atwood. And there is a lot that your book does differently, though. That your book does show flashbacks and it does show uh, what came before and exactly how it happened. Whereas uh, *The Handmaid's Tale* is almost when it, in the book form, certainly it, it occurs in a sort of vacuum. You're just told that this is how things are, and you don't necessarily given too much background into how how we got there and also how it all ends whereas your book very much has that beginning and end to this this uh this this scenario that you've put in the books right and there are also allusions to our world there's a world that's recognizable to us there is an allusion to Barack Obama and there is also a mention of a president that came after um we all know who that is and it's, it sort of seems clear as a reader that you are commenting on our world perhaps not in a future that we recognise or a future that we hope for, but it's very firmly rooted in a world that we would recognise. Yes, I agree. I, I did set it in a real, in in a very realistic now sort of a moment. That said, I'd like to think that without the specific references that I put in, that I'd like to think that this could be a bit timeless. Mm-hmm. That it might have been just imp- as important a generation ago, and it might still be as important a generation from now, because really, politics aside, this is about the idea that we really need to cherish our rights, and and in order and, and part of cherishing them is using them <laughs> responsibly. Right? I found out an interesting statistic long after I finished Vox, long after it was sold, and I looked up voting statistics in the U.S. And I, I saw that for presidential elections, which obviously are the biggest elections, the most important ones, the ones that get the most lead time and publicity, the average voting turnout somewhere around 60 to 65 percent. Mm-hmm. So that means that one in three eligible voters is sitting at home not voting, mm. which I found really shocking. 
And of course, you can imagine for little city local elections, oh my God, 10% turnout, 10% turnout. Mm. When I went to Germany on a press tour last week, I found out that the, the main, the major uh, election turnouts are about the same, 60 to 65%. So if, if this is true, then don't we need to do something about it? Mm. Uh, and, and I hope that really, regardless of one's politics, the important thing is to get out there and use that voice that, that we have. Because there are places in the world, either in, in the present or in, in past history, in very recent history, where it's impossible to do that, right? Yes. I mean, I, I think, what was it, Switzerland? In Switzerland, women got the vote in Switzerland in the 1970s. Yes. Right? That's actually, that's in living memory yes. for a lot of us. So we need to, you know, not take things for granted so much. Yeah. I mean, this might seem like a really odd question, but I'd like to put it to you. Um, this book is, is a dystopian novel. And sure. in that it is, it's sort of speculative fiction and it's exploring sort of social, political structures, but it's also exploring it in a way that you're posing it as this is everything that, you as the author do not agree with this is a sort of you're ex you're exploring something that you hope will not happen you know as opposed to a utopia where you're possibly exploring social and political structures through a sort of uh well, a vision of, yeah it's actually a, a vision of something Absolutely. better why when you sort of sat down to write this why did you go for dystopia as opposed to looking at a utopia and exploring the same themes well, I think dystopia sells better. Mm. Uh, that really, that, <laughs> that's true. a joke. That's no, a joke. No, it's probably uh, true. I, I do think that more people are want to read something where the stakes are very high mm. when somebody can overcome a hurdle than, say, read about Shangri-La in Lost Horizon, mm. where obviously there are challenges there, but they're different. There's a, an element of drama there. So when, when I say sells better, I don't mean it sells better, we're all going to make lots of money. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense that people really grab onto these books more because the stakes are high, right? There's risk. And when there's risk and someone has to overcome it, there's drama. So look at any dystopian novel. And yes, Vox is absolutely, I agree that it's dystopian because I think it fits the general definition of dystopia, which I invented a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, and also, I'll say it again. We've got big state, we've got little individual, and then the boot of the state comes down and splat, right? This, is, this happens in every single dystopia. Mm -hmm. So you are absolutely right that there are things that I don't agree with in Vox. I um, have a great fear of too much control, particularly at the hands of uh, the state, right? We've seen this happen. We've seen what happens, what happened in Romania, what happened in Germany, what happens still today in some countries, what could happen in other countries if we allow the state to have too much power. This is a big fear of mine. So, so in a very general kind of a sense, yes, there I am speaking out a bit about that in Vox. Mm. 
I mean, and does it's it's that sort of line because it is a thriller, really, and it is supremely entertaining. Like, you know, as a compliment, that you. <laughs> you do, you do read, you go through it really, really quickly. But it's also that fine line because there is a lot of stuff in this book. There's the horrendous acts of violence, and there is a lot of misogyny, particularly upsetting misogyny, really, um, from Steve, the sure. older son, um, to his mother Jean, and it's that line between, I suppose, entertainment, but also. The polemical side of of the the novel, sort of looking at, you know, who do we want to be and what kind of society do we want to live in? And sure. I sort of wonder: is there any part of you that ever balked at depicting some of the violence or some of the misogyny that you had to write? And it's not to say that you shouldn't shouldn't have written it or that no one should write it, but I suppose it's this idea that suffering and certainly certainly has the way that Vox is coming out in this among a swath of other feminist novels that are often looking at female suffering mm. is there anything that balks at you at the idea that that could be entertainment like i said i read a lot of horror and i read a lot of thrillers and generally speaking there are some horrible things that happen in horror if i can <laughs> use those two roots in the same sentence like that <laughs> i was thinking about i know we're here to talk about vox but i want to i want to think about something that that i read that I found really, really difficult to read. As you know, I, I love Stephen King, and mm. I hope he's listening to this from <laughs> his be. house in Maine. That would be really nice. I've been reading Stephen King for uh, since I was 13 years old, which is a while. I was thinking about his book, It, and there's a scene in It where there's a very, very horrible kid who does... I can't, I mean, unspeakable things to animals, Mm -hmm. pets, other people's pets. It's gruesome to read. I mean, it makes, I'm a dog lover and a cat lover and, you know, I like piggies. And so I read these passages and I am just so upset, so viscerally upset. But I still read them. And they are part of a book that is meant to entertain, right? Mm. And I've noticed this in other stories as well. There's a sense in which I think when the the worse the bad guy is, the brighter the light that's shining on the hero or the heroine. So we need this juxtaposition of the dark and the light, the chiaroscuro, the good and the bad. And sometimes we need that to be in your face because then perhaps we root even harder for the good guys mm-hmm. by making the bad guys so bad. So to answer your question briefly, yes, of course I recoiled at this. But on the other hand, I think it was very important to put in there and mm. not skim over. That was Christina Delcher talking to Sean Kane. Vox is published later this month by HQ in the UK and Barclay in the US. Notes on a Nervous Planet is published by Canongate. Next week, we'll be on the trail of the composer Frédéric Chopin with the conductor Paul Kildare and the painter Diego Velázquez with the novelist Amy Sackville. Meanwhile, you can subscribe and review us on all your favourite podcatchers. Or you can join the discussion on Twitter by leaving a comment on the podcast page or by emailing us on bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Simon Barnard, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, 
just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.